Well, it is with great joy this morning that I get to introduce our guest speaker, is Pastor Stephen Dewey. As uh, for some of you, maybe you weren't here a couple of weeks ago whenever he preached. He preached out of Isaiah 42, and he did a wonderful job with a message titled Treasure the Servant. Today, he's going to take us to a psalm, Psalm 73, and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And so I hope that uh, I hope that your hearts are ready to receive God's word. Um, I will say this about Stephen. Last time I said that, you know, he's, he's far smarter than I am and he made better grades than I did in seminary and all of that is definitely true. Hopefully you were here this morning for Sunday school where we got to know Stephen and his wife Veronica a little bit better. If not, then I will again encourage you stay afterwards and we'll definitely get to know them much better as we, uh, as we ask them some deeper questions concerning the faith and ministry and and all of those fun things. But for now, let's forget about all that, and let's welcome Pastor Stephen Dewey as he brings the word. Thank you, Hans. Good morning, everyone. It is is great to be back here again on this snowy Sunday in February, and it is a joy to be with you all. My little son, Oliver, is two and a half, and he is not a fan of the snow. So he is uh, with Grandma today. We've got our little daughter Mabel here again with us. And we're just over, overjoyed to be asked to come back and open God's Word again. It's something I love to do, and I'm grateful to get to do that again this morning. So thank you. Thank you for having us back. And I do look forward to your questions afterwards, so please think into those and uh, look forward to that time with you as well. We're going to be in Psalm 73 today, as Hans has mentioned a few times. Go ahead and turn to Psalm 73. And as we get there... I want to consider a a well-known phrase. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Okay, I I hear some echoing. Great. That phrase came to prominence in evangelical Christianity back in the 1990s at a Promise Keepers event when one side of the auditorium started calling out, God is good all the time, and the other half echoed back all the time, God is good. And ever since, it's been part of our Christian vocabulary. But does this phrase really mean what it says? And if so, is it really true? When you lose your job because of layoffs and the ultimate pagan at the desk next to you does not, is God good? When that man or woman you've loved for months finally rejects you for the last time, and yet your unsaved sibling is happily married, is God good? When, a cancer, when cancer claims the life of a loved one, even though this attempted cure has worked for many others in the past, is God good? I think of Bruce Olson, a longtime missionary to the Modalone people in Colombia. After many years of his faithful and fruitful service as a single man, God brought Gloria into his life. She was a beautiful Colombian with a real burning heart for God and the salvation of the lost. Now, Bruce met Gloria when she visited him with her brother in the jungle. They began writing letters to one another. And they would see each other for a time to time, and God would develop their relationship. After two years, they joyfully decided to marry. Now, during their engagement, Bruce was serving in the jungle with the Modalone people as normal, while Gloria was finishing her final year of a long and grueling doctoral program. She was preparing to come out and serve with Bruce as a doctor uh, on, on this missionary team out in the, with the Motolones. Now, with just months to go before their wedding, Bruce received three letters from Gloria's mother all at once. It was hard to get mail into the jungle, and it often came in clumps. 
eager to get something from his love, he first opened, he opened the first letter and simply read, the funeral was yesterday. It was beautiful. We wish you had been there. Confused, he tore open another letter and it said, Gloria's been in a terrible car accident. Please come quickly. The third opened, read, Gloria passed away this morning and is with Jesus now. This sad story happened some 47 years ago. Bruce Olson is 77 years old this year, has served God his entire adult life, but despite his desires, he is never married. Is God really, truly good? The answer, though sometimes pressed to admit it, is yes. You see, trials are for far more than just teaching us or correcting us. The goal of trials is not just to to get over it or to, to overcome it. Trials are meant to draw us nearer to God to see his goodness in a deeper way, a way impossible before. We need to use divine logic to comprehend our various trials and dilemmas in life. And today we get perhaps the greatest dose of divine logic in the entire Psalter. We're in Psalm 73, and rather than read through all 28 verses right now, we'll look at it piecemeal as we come to each new section. And so we'll begin in just the first two verses, the first two verses with an affirming, an affirming introduction. An affirming introduction. Let's look at the first two verses of Psalm 73. The scriptures read, A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Now this psalm begins with a clear introductory statement. What we have here is an after-the-fact statement. Asaph, our author, affirms what he now knows and now fully believes to be true. It's as if he's saying, after his experience in verses 3 to 28, here's what I know, here's what I've learned from this experience. And he states it emphatically. He says, surely, surely, truly, absolutely, God is good to Israel. It's like he's saying, I know it now. I know it with all my heart. I've tasted and seen God is truly good to his people. Asaph then clarifies who God is good to. First, he he says generally, Israel. They are are God's elect people of the Old Testament. But then he narrows it and clarifies it in the second line of this first verse, a common Hebrew poetic tactic. It's not just Israel, but look at verse 1. It's to those who are pure in heart. This has always been the way it is with God's people. You have a broad throng of those who claim to follow God. Within Israel, not all Israel is Israel, Paul has told us in Romans 9-6. Likewise, we have the same problem in the, in the greater church. Not all those in the church are the true church. So who is the true church of God? Who are the truly redeemed of God? It's those who are pure in heart. Now, this is not about perfection. It's about direction. It's about those who are loyal to God, Having put their faith in Jesus Christ, their motives, their affections, their lifestyles, their choices are pleasing to him. And it's to these whom Asaph now truly understands that God is good. So I ask you right up front as we begin, how is your heart today? Are you walking with God? 
Are you truly a part of the family of God? It's not about perfection. It's about direction. Are you pure in heart? The answer to this will make all the difference in the world, as we'll see later. Consider it now, and if you doubt, wrestle along with Asaph as we journey through this psalm. You see, Asaph wrestles. Look back at verse 2. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Looking back on himself before his trial, Asaph confesses his faults. He recognizes his own stumbling. The imagery he gives is of insecurity. When you don't have solid truth upon which to stand, it can seem as though you're walking on marbles. At that point, you're on the brink of slipping and falling into ruin with every move you make. Now we'll see later that Asaph does not abandon the faith, nor did he embrace the life of the wicked. However, while believing God, his faith was severely challenged by doubt. And this can happen to any Christian. In fact, I would posture that doubt happens to every Christian at some point. If you're a true believer in Christ, a season of doubt rightly responded to will drive you to lean on him, to lean on Christ, and in the flip side, result in greater faith. Doubt is not uncommon for the Christian. Now, there's various ways that it can come into our life, just like a mold that enters our house through various ways, seeking to corrode our hearts and minds. For Asaph, envy, envy is his stumbling block that leads him to doubt God. For his envy of the wicked leads him to a very agonizing dilemma. A very agonizing dilemma. That's our second point. The agonizing dilemma in verses 3 to 14. We'll read it in just a moment. Now we all face agonizing dilemmas in life, but some are more serious than others. Asaph here encounters a great one. A great moral dilemma. It's a moral dilemma for the ages. How can God be good if he allows wicked people to prosper so greatly? How can God be good if the wicked prosper so greatly? This is a great question, and one that we, like Asaph, need to come to terms with. Truly, though, if God is good, can people who hate what is good, who hate what is righteous, be so rich, so healthy, and so at ease? How do we answer this? Well, for Asaph, this question posed a great stumbling block and gave him an agonizing dilemma. Let's read verses 3 to 14. Look down at your text. Psalm 73, verse 3. I'll read down to verse 14. Asaph speaking, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is Asaph's complaint. He looks at the wicked, sees their life, and he cries out, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. 
Look back at verse 3. Why did he almost stumble and slip? What led him to doubt God? Verse 3 tells us, He grew envious of the arrogant. He saw and wanted their prosperity. Now that word prosperity, in Hebrew that's the word shalom. Shalom. Maybe you're familiar with that word. We often think of it as the word peace. It has a very robust, a full meaning. It means peace. It can mean blessing, prosperity, wealth, all wrapped together. Somebody whose life is at ease and peaceful. Shalom. The wicked had it. Many wicked people today in our society have it. Their life is at ease, at peace with others, and riches to spare. Asaph then goes on about the shalom of the wicked. Verse 4, there are no pains in their death. They die happy and old. He says their body was fat. They're well fed. They don't have to worry about their next meal like most people did in the ancient Near East. Verse 5, they're not in trouble. They're not plagued with difficulties like regular people. And in fact, their honor is their pride. They take pride in their pride, verse 6 tells us. Their, Their pride is like a necklace. Now, necklaces were symbols of honor given to important people. Both uh, Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament were given necklaces by their respective kings when they were given positions of authority. It's an honor status. And the rich take great pride in that pride. They wear their pride of over-self-confidence like a necklace, like a symbol of honor. But what's even worse, they have a violent character to them. They're violent. People were known by their garments. It says that they're, in verse 6, the garment of violence covers them. People were known by their garments. Most people in the ancient Near East had one, maybe two garments. And so people were known by the clothing they wore. These people, these men, and possibly women, most likely women as well, the rich people, were known by their violence. It characterized them. And yet they have shalom. What do we do with that? Verse 7 and 9 speak more in this vein, how brash they are in their thoughts and speech. Verse 10 then shows that even the commoner, even the common person is lured astray by them and they return back to them, to their place again and again. With their prosperity, the rich have garnered a following. People now follow them. And what's worse in verse 11, look at verse 11, their logic tells them that since they are getting away with all their evil schemes and are not being punished, God must not know what's going on. God must not know what's happening. How does God know, they ask boldly. And the implied answer is, he doesn't. They've come to believe that God doesn't really have a full understanding of man's way. And so they go on. They go on sinning. And finally, verse 12 summarizes the result of their wickedness. Look at verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They have increased in wealth. That word ease is the word shalway, derived from shalom. The wicked people have the shalom that Asaph covets. Their lives are carefree and comfortable, always increasing in wealth. Not fair, Asaph cries. I don't have that. Yet look at me. I have kept my heart pure. Verse 13, I have washed my hands in innocence. I've kept my life predominantly free from evil and wickedness and have not lived for worldly things or by worldly standards. And look at me. Rather than shalom, I get suffering. Rather than prosperity, I get punishment. All my good doing and evil shunning, it's all in vain. Asaph declares it. Verse 13, it's all in vain. And he declares it with certainty. Surely, Just like his introduction strongly affirms, surely God is good. At this point in his agonizing dilemma, he declares, 
Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. Do you ever feel that way? When you ponder the wealth, the ease, and even the fun of the wicked, the rich world around you has, do you sometimes think you should give up on this God thing and go enjoy life in different ways, sinful ways? You know, I've thought this at times in my life. I've, I've been at the same place as Asaph. It's likely you've been there too. Are you envying the wicked? Maybe even right now. Maybe life is hard for you today or this month or this year. But bear in mind, envying the wicked will always result in questioning your commitment to Christ. It will always result in questioning your commitment to Christ. Perhaps... Your marriage isn't exactly what you thought it would be. And you've been tempted to think that the grass is greener on the other side. And if you weren't a Christian, bound by Christian morals, you know you could leave. Perhaps you don't like your job and, or you can't progress because the demands of your family keep you from working those extra hours needed pr- for promotion. If you weren't a Christian, you could just abandon your family responsibilities and get ahead, finally able to make the big bucks. Maybe it's as simple as begrudging what you give to church. You give your 10% or so of your income into the church faithfully, but you want to take that, that dream vacation to Hawaii that your neighbors just took. Just a few months of not giving to the church, and you'd be able to. You'd be able to go. If you weren't a Christian, you could sure have a much more active and enjoyable lifestyle. And all this time, just compounding your problems like ASAP, as people around you know you're a Christian, they chastise you and rebuke you for your faith. You're not given equal consideration by your boss, perhaps, because of your faith, because you won't lie for your clients. And maybe you're in school studying, and any time you try to share what's true in class, you get rebuked by a teacher and peer alike. You're working hard, you're giving God everything, and yet you lack and you have no shalom. Is it all in vain? Have you cried in your heart like Asaph, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure? Friend, nobody would blame you. Nobody, that is, who is worldly-minded. Because when these temptations come, they only get a foothold when we forget the astonishing truth. The astonishing truth, our third point as we move through this text. The astonishing truth in verses 15 to 20. Let's look at our Bibles as I read verses 15 to 20 of this great psalm. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus... Behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. It is here that Asaph recounts his turning from doubt to faith. The truth about God has brought him back to reality. The previous thoughts of vanity for pure living were thankfully kept to himself during this struggle. In verse 15, he comments, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed your generation, the generation of your children. This I will speak thus is referring back to his statement in verse 13, where he said, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. If he had blurted that out, if he had struggled with this publicly, he would have led many astray. You see, Asaph was a leader. He was the worship leader appointed by David 
for the temple. He had a great responsibility. He was the worship team leader. And yes, there was a team, priests playing harp, lyre, trumpet, other instruments. They were under Asaph's leadership. Now this, this lesson in verse 15 reveals two things. First, spiritual leaders are not immune from spiritual doubt. Your elders, Pastor Bill, Pastor Hans, others, we can wrestle like Asaph did. But secondly, and more importantly to realize, is the effect a leader can have if he expresses his unresolved spiritual turmoil to his followers. In his wisdom, Asaph kept his conflict quiet from the masses. If he had spoken of it publicly, just imagine how many might have stumbled in doubt. Now, it is fine and good to get counsel when we are having spiritual difficulty. We should seek counsel. But that's different than announcing one's doubts for all to see. If you have any kind of spiritual leadership, even the leadership of parenting, those under you could be led astray by your doubting. Friends, sometimes we've just got to work out our own issues in our own hearts so others', others faith isn't weakened. When you're experiencing doubt, follow Asaph's lead. Go before God and not the public to announce your issues. Seek one-on-one counsel and not the public's opinions. But now after the fact, Asaph can actually tell the congregation about his struggle. Notice it's written in Scripture. He has told us about his struggle with doubt. It reveals to us that he is human like us, and he has doubts. But now, after the fact, he can encourage us with what he's learned, with what he's learned through it. First, he's learned that when thinking about this on his own, alone by himself, it was only troublesome and wearying, verse 16 tells us. But then verse 17, where did he go? To the sanctuary of God. And it was here, in the context of worship, that he recalled the truth. When he began to worship God and turn his heart toward heaven, God brought to mind the outcome of the wicked. We must always remember, as Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, to lean not on our own understanding. Lean not on your own understanding. Rather, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. And what we have here is Asaph turned to God. God directs his mental path. God showed him how to think about his agonizing dilemma. The astonishing truth hit Asaph like a bag of bricks. The wicked will be destroyed. The wicked will be destroyed. Now, a gigantic roller coaster seems peaceful as you ride that long, slow chain to the top. You might even enjoy it for a while as you take in the view. Life can seem easy and peaceful and enjoyable for the wicked as they ride out their lengthy days. It's easy for them to ignore that death is waiting them at the other end. But just as suddenly as a roller coaster plunges you downward at sonic speeds, so does death plunge all mankind into an eternal reality. This life is like a dream, verse 20 tells us. When a person awakes, it passes quickly. And when their days are through, as verse 19 says, oh, how they are destroyed in a moment. Friend, all the blessings on the wicked are temporal. They do not last. The the time of their life might be 80 years, 90 years, and then they die. Then eternity comes. That's 80 years, 90 years, times a trillion, times infinity. It just goes on 
and on. The prosperity, the ease, the wealth, the shalom of the wicked will not last. In fact, the wicked are only heaping up eternal wrath for themselves. They are accountable to God for every dollar they get. They'll be punished even more. Romans 2.5 talks about how the wicked are storing up wrath for themselves on the day of God's righteous judgment. James 5.7, speaking explicitly about these rich and wicked people, declares they have fattened their hearts for a day of slaughter. With each proud accomplishment, every selfish income, every violent act, every lie of the tongue, they are only increasing the wrath that is coming upon them. Surely then, friends, it is not a good thing for the wicked to prosper. And we have got to have this spiritual perspective as we go through our lives. We need to remember that right now is not everything. That Pepsi commercial from a few years back, Live for Now, worst commercial ever. Right now is not everything. Like it says in verses 18 to 20 of our passage, their ruin is coming. And so before you become envious of their prosperity, remember that God is simply allowing them to build up their own wrath. Now, while these wicked prosper in life, we Christians, on the other hand, we're often beset by trial after trial after trial. Asaph recognized that, and he complained about it back in verse 14. I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Friend, do you know why you continually have trials as a Christian, and yet the wicked never do? It's because the wicked are not God's children. And you don't discipline somebody else's kids. Right? Jesus in John 8, 44, when talking to the wicked Pharisees who refused to believe in him, he explained to them that they were children of the devil. Satan was their father. Satan is the father of all who have not repented of their sin and put their trust in Christ. And so the wicked and prosperous of this world, their father is the devil. And he is a bad dad. The Master Seminary professor, Dr. Murphy, calls this the Walmart principle. You know what he's talking about, I bet. You've seen little kids running around Walmart wreaking havoc in every aisle. These kids, they're undisciplined. They're uncaring of others. And when they see a toy they want, they tell their parents that they want it. And lo and behold, their parent buys it for them. That's a bad dad right there. It's what Satan is doing to his rich kids every day. He never disciplines them. They get whatever they want in life. But the good parent in Walmart disciplines their kids when they misbehave. Maybe not right there in public, at least not with a, a paddle, hopefully. But, but he disciplines them. He doesn't buy them whatever toy they want. Sometimes he will because he loves them. But generally speaking, he simply tells them to follow him to the next aisle, and he expects obedience. That's your father if you're in Christ. He loves you. He knows exactly what you need. He does give gifts to his children, but he doesn't spoil us with them. He knows what's best for you. Hebrews 12 explains how he'll use discipline on us because he loves us and desires that we grow. He'll put trials in your life to tear you away from earthly joys so that you long for your heavenly home. Friends, don't give up and throw in your lot with the wicked. That short-term payoff would be the most, the most foolish decision you could make. 
live for God to the end, and eternal glory will be yours. In fact, we learn this very truth in our next section of Scripture where we see the affection of the Father. The affection of the Father, verses 21 to 26. Look into our text, verse 21 to 26 says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Great portion of scripture. Now I've heard it said that no pig has ever seen the stars. Think about it for a moment. No pig has ever seen the stars. Now my first inclination upon hearing this is that pigs live outside. Of course they've seen the stars. They're under them their entire lives. How can it be said that no pig has ever seen the stars? Well, the idea is that they're so focused on the mud and the glop right in front of them that they never look up. And if you've watched a pig for even a few minutes, you know this to be true. Asaph, during his time of envy, suffered the same problem. He became so earthly focused that he was, verse 22, like a beast before God. At that time, his heart was embittered. Soured is the the literal meaning of this Hebrew word. His heart became sour. He, He was miserable, focusing on earthly things, being senseless and ignorant of God above. Though God was always right there, like a pig, like a beast, he never looked up. But finally, as we saw back in verse 17, he came into God's presence and saw the stars, as it were. He confessed his sin to God, just as he has confessed it here in Holy Scripture. And there's something beautiful we see in the next couple of verses after this. The affection of the Father is on grandest display. Asaph is going to apply divine logic here as he considers the theology he knows about God, what he knows about God. And he reminds us in verse 23 that even though he was a brutish, ignorant beast, nevertheless, I am continually with you. God was always with him at all times. No matter how foolish he acted, God was with him. And what a grand statement. What a grand truth that applies to you and to me. The divine logic is seen in that Asaph recognized his own sin and his own ability to turn to God, and yet God was right there. He applied what he knew of his sin nature. He applied what he knew of God's compassion and mercy. He applied what he knew of God's omnipresence, how he's everywhere at once, and he put it all together to recognize that despite his sin, his doubt, his waywardness, God was always with him. No attitude, no ignorance, no sin on the believer's part can separate us from the love of God. Even in our wanderings, even in our doubtings, God is continually with you. And you are continually with God. In fact, it's God who's leading you every step of the way. Verse 23 tells us that you've taken hold of my right hand. The same divine logic propelled Asaph to conclude that it was God 
who brought him out of this agonizing dilemma. Though Asaph had not clung to God, God tenaciously clung to him. And that's what God does for us, friend. God grasps our right hand and leads us where we need to go. In the Hebrew, I'll get a little nerdy here, it's in the perfect tense, meaning that God has already done this. Asaph is referring back to his bout with envy. Even then, God was clinging to him. And there are times when you're that child in Walmart. You're that child so desperately trying to get in trouble in life. And like the good parent that he is, God grasps you by the hand and he pulls you out of your stupor. He rescues you before you can no longer be rescued. In fact, he often rescues you before you even know you needed rescue. Verse 24 then continues, compounding God's affection for us. For not only are we always with him and held onto by him, but he guides us in the way we should go. Verse 24, with your counsel you will guide me, the verse says. This is in the imperfect tense, expressing progressive action on God's part. As you trust in him and look to him, he will guide you through the trials of this life, through the challenges that you face. As you look to him, his counsel lights your path. What does Psalm 119, 105 say? Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. God guides us. And if God is going to stay with you, to rescue you and then guide you through life, applying divine logic will also tell you that God's going to hang on to you to the very end. And that's exactly what the last phrase of verse 24 says. It's the most amazing of all. Look at the end of verse 24. And afterward, you receive me to glory. Juxtaposed with the doom of the wicked, we have the children of God received into the glories of heaven. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet, I'm going to take it a step further. The word receive is one way to translate the Hebrew word, but a better way in this case is take. Take. That's the prevailing use and should be used here. God does not passively open heaven's doors and receive us as we walk in. No. God flings wide heaven's gates, tenderly grasps your soul, and actively takes you to his side. Take. It's the same one used for Enoch and Elijah. Neither of them died. They were taken to be with God. When we die, God must still take the same action. We can't raise ourselves and go there. God must take us. What compassion. What affection of the Father. Though we doubt and so often have sour hearts and even sin against the God who died for us, God still grasps us by the hand, guides us with his counsel, and takes us to be with him in glory. What grace. What grace we see here from the Father that we should be called sons and daughters of God. Friend, have you turned to him? Have you given your life to him? Repent of your sins. Turn from your wicked ways. Turn to Christ. He came to earth as a man to live the perfect life that you could not, that we could not. He died the death that you deserved, and then he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death. This Jesus, the Savior of the world, will give you his perfect righteousness. 
He'll take your wicked life upon himself, forgiving you of your sin, and he'll replace it with his own life. At the judgment day, God will see Christ in you, all his perfection, and you will be taken into glory. Believe God this day and receive eternal life. There in heaven, we will have true shalom the eternal peace that's worth denying this world for. What could be worth what could be worth more living for than that? Such a radical realization on Azef's part. <clears throat> Such a radical realization on Asaph's part led him to do what I hope you're doing now. Worshiping God and proclaiming your undying allegiance to him. Hear the praise of Asaph. Look at verse 25 and 26. He praises God. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the proclamation of a man who has been renewed again by the grace of God. His heart has been refreshed as he's turned from worldly thinking to godly thinking. And this proclamation in these two verses reveals it all. First, he's desiring heaven, eternal life with God. He's not thinking about heaven because of the prosperity he'll get there or the peace he'll have. He's not contemplating the fun he'll have on his mansion at 2654 Southeast Gold Street. What's in heaven for Asaph? It's God. God. He looks forward to being with God most high. And this radical shift in his thinking brings him to proclaim in the strongest terms, there is nothing on earth that he desires besides God. He looks forward to God in heaven and he wants God on on earth here now. He wants a relationship with God now. What about you? What are your greatest desires today? Are you longing for a bigger house, bigger car, richer future? Will you be satisfied if you just get that job, just finally get married one day or finally reach retirement? Is your greatest longing for something in this life? Friends, may it never be. God is too good to desire anything less. May we all cry out with Asaph from the bottom of our hearts, besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Your flesh, your heart will fail, but you will go on forever. Make God your rock. Make God your portion, your strength, and your refuge forever. Well, Asaph, having had his whole life radically changed, brings his song to an end with an assertive conclusion. Our last point, we'll see it quickly, an assertive conclusion. Let's look at these last two verses of our psalm. Verse 27 and 28, Asaph finishes, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Now, just in case his message wasn't clear enough, Asaph brings two strong and assertive statements to conclude his message. 
First, he says in no uncertain terms, the wicked will perish. But it's not just that they will perish, but that God will destroy them. God will actively destroy them for being unfaithful to him. The NASB and the ESV translations, they put padded gloves on and soften the impact of verse 27. Verse 27 literally says at the end, you have annihilated all those who play the harlot from you. Living for anything but God is viewed as spiritual adultery by God. The punishment is annihilation, extermination. They are annihilated off the face of the earth and sentenced to eternal suffering in hell. This is black and white, friends. It's crystal clear. Asaph has realized this truth in all its brutality and asserts it strongly here at the end so we don't miss it. But verse 28, look at verse 28. But as for me, as for us, the nearness of God is my good. The end is the same as the beginning. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Friends, the greatest good you'll ever have is the nearness of God. Love him with all your heart with all your mind, soul, and strength, and experience this goodness. Turn from your sin. Leave your worldly desires behind. Discover what Asaph discovered. The nearness of God is your good. God is good all the time. All the time. God is good. Nothing can prove otherwise, friends. We need to make God our refuge. And then at the end of verse 28... Asaph concludes, go and tell of his works. Friends, we must experience the goodness of God, just how much greater he is than anything this world provides. And then we go. We share the gospel and tell of all his works. May we do that today as we leave this place. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we love your word how it teaches us, instructs us, and washes over us. God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you have spoken to us, Lord God, and that we would love you more than anything. No matter what trials we face, people face in this room, God, may they trust and know that you are a good father, that you discipline and you guide and you, you move in our lives, Lord God, for our good and for your glory. God, use this text to impact us for greater love for you, God, and greater steadfastness toward you. In your precious name we pray, amen.